sometimes we need a wake-up call. Sometimes we need someone in our life to tell us something that we might not want to hear. Sometimes we need someone to give us a hard word in love to wake us up, to help us see our errors, the errors of our ways, to help us to change, change course, change direction, change our attitudes, our behaviors, our actions. I can think of a time in my life when I had a significant wake-up call. It came when I was 18 years old, and I was calling myself a Christian, but living also in a sinful and worldly way. And the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin in an overwhelming way, and I knew that I had to do one of two things. I needed to either stop calling myself a Christian or follow Jesus. But God, by His grace, granted me repentance from my sin, and I followed Jesus. But I needed that wake-up call. Sometimes we need that. This morning, we are going to see how the Lord issued a wake-up call to His people through one of His prophets, and we are also going to see how the people responded. We are continuing our sermon series, going through the minor prophets, and we are down to our final three And the final three minor prophets make up the last three books of the Old Testament. And the last three minor prophets form a subset of their own as these three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are what we refer to as the post-exilic prophets. And by post-exilic prophets, we mean the prophets who came after the exile. In order to understand what we mean by post-exilic prophets, you have to understand a little of Israel's history. And one of the things I have appreciated about this sermon series is the way Pastor Sam has taken some time to unpack some of the history of Israel in order to help us understand the context in which the minor prophets carried out their ministry. Along those lines, I want to remind us of several significant events in the history of Israel that shed light on what was taking place after the exile. In the book of Genesis, we see that the Lord chose to carry out his plan of redeeming his sinful people and establishing his kingdom through a man named Abraham and his descendants. His descendants became the people of Israel. And in the book of Exodus, we see how the people of Israel became slaves under the oppressive regime of Pharaoh in Egypt. But they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord saw their affliction and heard their cries for help and delivered them from Egypt in a powerful way. After the exodus from Egypt, the Lord brought the Israelites to Mount Sinai where he established his covenant with them. In an extraordinary act of grace and mercy and kindness, he committed himself to these people. In love, he entered into a covenant relationship with them, promising to be their God, promising to bless them. And he called them to be his people and to faithfully live according to his ways. He gave them laws. He gave them good instructions whereby they could live in a way that was good and right and pleasing to the Lord and enjoy his blessing. He also promised to give them a land of their own. He promised to give them a good land where they could dwell in safety and peace as he defeated their enemies for them. And he promised to give them his presence. He promised to dwell among them as their God, making them completely and utterly unique among all the peoples of the earth. But before they entered the land the Lord promised to give them, He warned them through Moses what would happen to them if they broke the covenant, if they disobeyed his commands. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 18, we read, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. If the Israelites were not faithful to the covenant and disobeyed the good commands of the Lord, they would face judgment and would eventually be removed from the land the Lord gave them. He warned them, you will face, face this judgment, you will be removed from the land. Well, the Lord did bless them. He did provide them the land. We read in the book of Joshua how they entered into the land the Lord promised to give them. He drove out their enemies before them and they were established in what was the land of Canaan. And the Lord was good to them. He established them in the land. He gave them a king in David to whom he made extraordinary promises. He made promises to David that there would be a king. One of his descendants would be a king who would rule forever. And then the son of David, King Solomon, was able to build the temple in Jerusalem, their capital city, where God's manifest presence would dwell. God blessed the building of the temple. And he appeared in the temple in glory, demonstrated to them that he was with them. After Solomon, the people of Israel divided into two kingdoms the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And sadly, the history of the people of Israel, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, was marked by sin, rebellion, and the breaking of the covenant. Many of the prophets we read in the Old Testament were sent to call the people to repentance and a return to covenant faithfulness. They even warned them that if they failed to repent, they would face judgment in the form of destruction and exile. And indeed, that is what came to pass. Exile came first to the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC when the Lord sent the Assyrians to destroy them and take them away from the land into exile. Sadly, that did not deter the southern kingdom from their sinful ways. In 586 BC, just as the Lord had said, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and took the remaining Jews of Judah into exile. And when they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. The glorious dwelling place of the Lord was destroyed in 586 B.C. But because God is gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, and faithful to his covenant, this was not the end of the story. The Lord told the prophet Habakkuk that he was going to bring judgment to the Babylonians, and he did through Cyrus and the Persian Empire. In 539 B.C., Cyrus conquered the Babylonians and became the preeminent world power. And in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we read about the extraordinary work of the Lord through Cyrus. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So the Lord stirred up the heart of this pagan king to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem that they might rebuild this glorious kingdom. The sovereign hand of the Lord was at work in a powerful and wonderful way. It was an incredible gift to the Jews. It was an incredible demonstration of God's mercy to them. Unfortunately, it was not all smooth sailing from there, and that's where the post-exilic prophets enter the scene. One might have thought that once the exiles returned to Jerusalem, they would have got, uh, got to work right away in rebuilding the temple of the Lord because they were so grateful for the way the Lord had blessed them. But that did not happen. The ministry of Haggai covered a four-month period from what would have been August of 520 B.C. to December of 520 B.C. And what we we're going to see is that the book of Haggai is a series of five messages that fit into three groups or themes. And the first group comes in chapter 1. I'm going to begin by reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies in ruins, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. On August 29th, 520 B.C., Haggai delivered his first message from the Lord. His primary audience, audience was the leaders of God's people, namely Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the high priest. Zerubbabel was the grandson of King Jehoiakim, who had been taken captive to, to Babylon in 597 B.C., and was the heir apparent to the throne of David. He was a descendant of King David, to whom God made these wonderful promises. Joshua the high priest was responsible to oversee the worship of the community who had returned from exile. But we quickly see that the message was not only for the leaders, but for all the people in Jerusalem. We also see that the first message was an indictment of God's people. 
The Lord found fault with his people who had returned from exile to Jerusalem but had delayed in doing the work of rebuilding the temple. He called them out for their misplaced priorities. The temple was of utmost importance to the Lord's people. The temple was the place of the manifest presence of the Lord. The Lord appeared in a glorious way in the temple. We read about this in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 when Solomon completed the building of the temple. In verses 1 through 3, we read, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord in the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The temple was the special place of God's dwelling and a visible reminder that he was with his people. The temple was also the place of sacrifice. When the people sinned, they could go to the temple to offer sacrifices to make atonement for their sins. But since the temple had been destroyed in 586 BC, no sacrifices had been offered for nearly 70 years when Haggai delivered this message. And the people had returned from exile 18 years prior to Haggai delivering this message. The temple had been destroyed for 66 years and the exiles had been home for 18 years, yet the temple lay in ruins. The Lord was saying to them, you are neglecting the house of the Lord, but you seem to have plenty of time to take care of the things that you want to do. You are neglecting the work of the Lord, but you're taking care of yourselves. In other words, the Lord was saying you are pursuing your own interests, but don't seem to care about the fact that the place of the Lord's dwelling is not being rebuilt. The Lord in his kindness had brought them back from exile to their homeland, the Lord in his mercy and kindness had caused Cyrus to compel them to rebuild the temple. Yet the Lord's people were not giving any indication that they cared about the Lord's presence or doing the Lord's work. They only seemed to care about their own lives and their own comfort. In light of this, the Lord, through his prophet, urged his people to consider their ways. Consider your ways. Examine your lives Ponder your actions. What are the results? How are things working out for you? He said, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat and drink but don't have enough. You put on clothes and they don't keep you warm. And you put the money that you earn into bags with holes. In other words, not going that great for you. And he was referencing the covenant curses from way back in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 30. Again, back in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord told the people that if they followed Him, if they obeyed His good commands, they would enjoy His blessing. But if they failed to obey His commands and His instructions, they would experience His curses. He presented them with two ways to live. Walk in my ways, obey my commands, enjoy blessing, disobey me, rebel against me, and you will experience curses. Through Haggai, the Lord was showing them that the economic and social hardship they were experiencing was a result of their disobedience and lack of concern for the covenant with the Lord. And the Lord was saying, don't you see? Don't you see? Can't you make the connection? Don't you see 
how your disobedience is causing you to experience this hardship? Have I not made it plain to you? Have I not told you? Had I, have I not warned you? Consider your lives. You are neglecting the house of the Lord and you are facing hardship. So the Lord called them to action. He told them to go to the hills, get the timber, and build the house. He called them to repentance. This was their wake-up call. Wake up. You're walking in disobedience. You're suffering the consequences. Now is the time to repent and take action. He also provided them with the reason they should build the temple. He didn't say build the temple and then all these good things are going to happen to you. No, he said, build the temple that I may be glorified. He went on to say they had so little because he was the one who called for the drought. He reiterated the reason for the drought in succinct fashion in verse 9 where he said, it's because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. The people of Judah were too busy with the affairs of their own lives to care about the glory of the Lord. And their lack of concern for the temple exposed their spiritual sickness. Therefore, the Lord graciously called them to repent. Brothers and sisters, this is a poignant word for us today. We are a busy people who live busy lives, and it's easy for us to be consumed with our busyness to the extent that we neglect Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. We need to ask ourselves, if we are busy with our own affairs while we are neglecting the presence of the Lord and the work of the Lord. When he commanded them to rebuild the temple, we need to understand that the application for us has nothing to do with this building. This building is a good gift that we want to be faithful to steward for the glory of God, for the advance of the gospel, for making disciples. This is, this is a good gift, and, and we are exceedingly thankful for everyone who serves to help keep this building clean and in order and, and make improvements and renovations. These are good things. These are good ways to serve, but we don't want to fall into the mistake of equating the temple in the Old Testament with a church building here and now. We don't want to make this mistake, and the reason we don't want to make that mistake is because the temple pointed to a far greater reality than any building. The temple pointed forward to Jesus. If we think, well, in the Old Testament, the house of the Lord was the temple, and nowadays the house of the Lord is this church building, then we miss the significance of Jesus. Referring to himself in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. In John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The temple, which was the place of God's glorious presence and the place of sacrifice, pointed to Jesus. In Jesus, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and in Jesus, we have the sacrifice for our sins. We no longer need the temple because in Jesus, we have the place of God's presence and the place of God's sacrifice. So in light of this, how do we apply what we read in Haggai chapter 1? 
I believe the application for us is to repent of being busy with our own lives while neglecting the ministry of Jesus. We need to be a people who abide in Jesus, who love Jesus, and seek to carry out the ministry of Jesus. We won't want to be so busy that we are neglecting Jesus. Jesus came and was far greater and far more important than the temple. The Lord called his people to repent, repent for the neglect of the temple. How much more important is it for us to not neglect Jesus? So how did the people respond to Haggai's first message? How did they respond to their wake-up call? Let's re keep reading in verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The leaders of God's people and the entire community heeded the word of the Lord spoken through Haggai. We read that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and feared the Lord. Moreover, the Lord stirred up Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people, and they began the, the work of rebuilding the temple. The Lord was the one who graciously sent Haggai, and the Lord was the one who graciously stirred up the hearts of the people. And as they responded favorably to the Lord's word, the Lord gave them an incredible message of encouragement. Through Haggai, the Lord's second message to the people was, I am with you. He had not given up on them. He had not abandoned them. And he was not going to wait until they completed the temple to bless them with his presence. And his presence was an incredible and glorious gift. Fourteen times in Haggai, the prophet referred to the Lord as the Lord of hosts. And that title has military connotations as the primary meaning of hosts is army. The title was a reminder of his power and glory and his sovereign kingship over all creation. When Haggai said, the Lord is with you, he was referring to the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the sovereign ruler over everyone and everything, the mighty one, the powerful one, the glorious one. He is the one who was with them. In verses 12 through 15, we are provided with an example of how we are to respond to God's word in regard to doing the work of the Lord. Just as Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people in Jerusalem repented of their indifference and engaged in the work of the Lord, we too are called to respond to God's word by repenting of our neglect of doing the Lord's work and engage. We need to repent of busying our lives with our own affairs instead of engaging in the ministry of Jesus. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to many people. He appeared to his disciples and gave them instructions, which we now refer to as the Great Commission. And we read this in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus gave this work to his church, this work of 
proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. And why do we do this? We do this for the glory of the Lord. As more people come to faith in Jesus Christ, as we see the gospel advance, as we see more and more people worshiping Jesus, He is glorified. And so we want to be a people who are faithful to do the work of the Lord for the glory of the Lord. We want to repent of our busyness and engage in the ministry of Jesus. And just as the Lord gave the people in Haggai's day a wonderful assurance of his presence with them, so too Jesus gives that to us. When Haggai told the people to rebuild the temple, they began to do the the work of the Lord in rebuilding the temple. The Lord reassured them, I am with you. And listen to what Jesus said when he gave the great commission. He said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He gave the same assurance that he is with us. He is with us as we carry out his ministry. Well, the next message from Haggai came about a month later. Let's read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. In this message, the Lord addressed the discouragement among the community of exiles who had returned. You can imagine how difficult their task was. They were not a large group. They were not a well-resourced group. They did not have a lot of um, resources that we might think they would uh, need. They didn't have the kind of technology and tools that we have nowadays. And so they looked around, and they were discouraged. To make matters worse, some of them were old enough to remember the old temple before it had been destroyed in 586 B.C., They remembered the temple and how it had been in all of its glory and splendor. And then they looked around at what they were doing and it was nothing. It was pathetic. It was discouraging. It simply did not compare. They were not making much progress. They didn't have the resources Solomon had to hire skilled craftsmen to do the work. And they certainly didn't have the resources to cover the interior of the temple with gold. They had difficulty believing the temple would ever be restored to its former glory. They were given a task that seemed insurmountable, and they doubted they would get the results they desired. The Lord in his kindness brought encouragement to the community through Haggai. He said, I know you are overwhelmed by the task at hand, but be strong because I am with you, and I am faithful to the covenant I made with you, and therefore you have nothing to fear. Moreover, I'm going to ensure that the glory returns to the temple. 
The people didn't have the resources to bring the glory back to the temple, but the Lord has unlimited resources. The Lord promised to shake the nations so that the treasures of the nations would come in and fill the house with glory. The Lord said it's going to be so awesome that the glory that is coming will be greater than the glory that was. The future will be better than the past. And indeed, God's glory did come to the temple, but only people with the eyes of faith were able to see it. God's glory came to the temple in the form of Jesus. In the prologue of his gospel, John wrote, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He said, we have seen his glory. But so many people saw Jesus and missed his glory. But indeed, the glory of God came in the person of Jesus. The glory of God came to the temple. I believe that what Haggai said here found its fulfillment in part in Jesus, but I also believe it, pointed, it points to beyond Jesus. I believe it points to the new heavens and the new earth, which we look forward to. We look forward to the day when the Lord will welcome us into the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with Him in His glorious kingdom for all of eternity and it will be more glorious and, and, and better than anything we could possibly imagine. The former temple will not compare to what we will behold in Christ's kingdom. We will see glory, glory like we cannot imagine. So the Lord sought to encourage His people, saying, don't worry, I will make sure this happens. I will make sure that the glory will return and it will be far better than anything that came before. Haggai went on to deliver another message in chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Let's read. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his food, uh, with his fold, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. In this fourth message, the Lord promised a great reversal. The prophet asked a couple of questions concerning the Levitical law to impress upon the people the seriousness of their sin problem. In the book of Leviticus, the Lord gave his people a set of laws regarding things that are considered clean and things that are considered unclean. And he gave them these instructions to impress upon them the holiness of the Lord and their need to be holy as the Lord is holy. One of the 
primary themes of Leviticus is the Lord telling his people, be holy for I am holy. So he wanted to understand that he is transcendently pure. He wanted them to understand that he is set apart from all of creation. And so he, he, he gave them these instructions regarding things that are clean and unclean to help them to understand this and to live in a way that was pleasing to the Lord. And one of the things we see is that if something was declared holy by the Lord, if it touched something that was unclean, the thing that was unclean would not become holy. It did not transfer in that way. Conversely, if something was unclean, touched something that was clean, the thing that was clean would indeed become unclean. The uncleanness did transfer. And so Haggai is taking this and applying it to the people of the Lord. He's like, you were called to be a holy people. We read in Exodus 19 how they were called to be his holy people, but they had become unclean. They had become unholy, and therefore everything they put their hands to was also unclean. Everything they offered to the Lord was unclean because they had become unclean. They had this serious sin problem that they could not fix. They could not make themselves clean. They could not make themselves pure. They could not make themselves holy. They could not fix their sin problem. But what do we read? In spite of their sin and their inability to overcome their sin problem, the Lord was exceedingly gracious to them. Listen to what he said again to them. He said, but from this day on, I will bless you. From what day on? From the day that the foundation was laid. It's amazing the Lord did not say, from the time that you complete the temple and reinstitute the sacrifices, then I will start blessing you. He said from the day that the foundation was laid, it would take five or six more years before the temple was complete. But from the day that the foundation was laid, he said, I will bless you. Again, this is his mercy and his kindness to his people. You can't fix your sin problem, yet I am going to bless you. From the day that the foundation was laid, going forward, he would bless them. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone. Jesus is our cornerstone. And as the people of Israel were able to look back at the day that the foundation was laid and say, from that day on the Lord blessed us, we're able to look back at the death and resurrection of Jesus and say, that is the reason that God blesses us. That is the reason he forgives us of our sins and gives us the gift of eternal life. We receive blessing because of our cornerstone, Jesus Christ. The Lord blessed his people in spite of their sin. The Lord blesses us in Jesus Christ in spite of our sin. The book of Haggai concluded with yet another promise of the Lord's blessing. Let's read verses 20 through 23 of chapter 2. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord said he would make Zerubbabel like his signet ring, which was a symbol of his authority. Many years before Haggai delivered this message, the prophet Jeremiah delivered a devastating message to the king of Judah. He said, As I live, declares the Lord, 
Though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. The Lord, in his judgment, said, I am removing my authority from you. And this might have raised some serious questions in the minds of the Jews. They might have thought, well, is this the end of God's promises to the, the descendants of David? God is removing his authority from the line of David? Is this permanent? Is this forever? Is it over? Are these good promises that he made to David and his descendants? Are they done? Well, Haggai answered those questions. The Lord answered those questions through Haggai in verse 23, where we read that the Lord graciously reversed that judgment. Zerubbabel, who was the grandson of Jehoiakim and a descendant of David, was the representative of the line of David. The Lord had not given up on the line of David. He promised to give his authority to a descendant of David. And when you read the genealogies of Jesus Christ in Matthew and Luke, you will find the names Zerubbabel. The fulfillment of Haggai 2.23 is found in Jesus, the descendant of Zerubbabel in the line of David. He is the king and he is the signet ring who possesses all authority. In the Great Commission, he said, all authority has been given to me. Not surprisingly, the book of Haggai points to and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. All the good things the Lord promised in Haggai come to pass in Jesus. Jesus is the one who is far greater and far better than the temple, the place of God's presence, the place of God's sacrifice. In Jesus, the glory of the Lord dwells. We behold the glory of the Lord in Jesus. He is our cornerstone upon whom our faith is built. He is the descendant of Zerubbabel and the line of David who possesses the signet ring of the Lord who has all authority. And just as the Lord reassured his people through Haggai that he was with them, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. In light of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we need to consider our ways, examine our lives, and perhaps we need a wake-up call. Perhaps we need a wake-up call this morning. Perhaps we need to look to Jesus. Perhaps we need to look to Jesus and what He has done for us. Perhaps we need to behold Him in His glory. Perhaps we need to know Him more. Perhaps we need to be shaken out of our stupor. Perhaps we need to repent of our busyness. And perhaps we need to respond by abiding in Him, loving Him, him and engaging in his work brothers and sisters let us consider our ways and if we need a wake-up call let's not miss it let's not miss it let's respond let's be a people who abide in jesus who love jesus and who eagerly participate in the work of jesus for the glory of the lord knowing that he is with us. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you teach us and instruct us, encourage and exhort us through your word. We pray that you will give us ears to hear. We pray that you will give us responsive hearts. We pray that we will respond the right way to your word. We pray that we will respond through repentance and faith. Lord, we pray that we will be a people who love Jesus and abide in Jesus and eagerly participate in the work and ministry of Jesus. Grant that to us. Let us not miss a wake-up call. We thank you for this, Lord, and we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue our time of worship together by singing God's praises for his glory. And during this time of singing, uh, you are able to take communion. And we ask that you only take communion if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation. Communion is for those who are trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, for it is a demonstration of our faith. When we take communion, we are demonstrating that we are trusting in Christ and his work upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. His body was broken, his blood was shed, so that we can be reconciled to God the Father. So when you take communion, you are demonstrating your faith in Christ. And we always encourage you to examine your heart before taking communion. And the reason we do this is because we don't want to take communion in an unworthy manner. We don't want to take it lightly. We don't want to make light of this wonderful thing that Christ has done for us. So we encourage you to examine your heart first, if you are walking in unrepentance, we would ask you to refrain from taking communion and allow the Lord to lead you in the path of repentance. If you are out of unity with a brother or sister in Christ, we would ask you to refrain from taking communion and allow the Lord to work in you in such a way to pursue reconciliation and peace. Again, so that we take communion in a worthy manner. Though we are many, in Christ Jesus we are one. So during this time of singing, you can take communion when you are ready by walking down the outer aisles to the tables and you can take the bread and dip that in the juice or the wine and you can return to your seat down the center aisle. We also ask that if you have children and restoration kids that you would go down at this time and pick them up and bring them upstairs to participate with us uh, in our final uh, part of our time together. Let's stand and continue to worship the Lord.